I bought a 15,000 square foot building in New Britain, Connecticut. And I owned it for about a week and I got a phone call that from my property manager at six o'clock in the morning and Shannon, you know, well, those are never, Hey, everything's going okay. Phone calls, right? The wire should hit your bank account any day, any moment now. So the fact is the building next door was burning and she was calling me. And unfortunately my building was like 15, 20 feet away from the building. Hey everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the real estate rundown. You know, today I've got a very special guest because I've got a guy who has agreed with me that we're going to get real and we're going to talk about some of the things that happen inside the business that not everybody sees. Some of the things that you are not aware of until you're into it. And so today my guest is Ed Matthews and Ed's got a long track record in the business and Ed's been doing everything from flipping houses to now having raised over $10 million and has a portfolio well into the hundreds of, of properties that he's managing. But Ed has agreed to be real with us today. So welcome to the show, Ed. Thank you. How you doing, Shannon? Good to see you, my friend. Good. Hey, so Ed, let's start out a little bit with, you know, why you started flipping houses, where that yeah. led you, and, and what, what were kind of some of your next steps? So I spent a better part of 24, almost 25 years in the software and services space working for teeny tiny and medium-sized uh, companies out of Silicon Valley. And so one of the things that I needed to do was get off that horse, right? And so I was traveling like 150 nights a year. It was crazy. And I was missing a lot of good stuff at home. And so I started to get into real estate. It actually took me three years to, to overcome the abject fear, terror, I would say, of the responsibility of doing that. And I ultimately bought a four-family here in Connecticut. So that was my first deal. The problem was that I spent all my money on that first deal. And so I needed to figure out... <laughs> how to keep the ball rolling. And so I would flip a couple more, you know, I would get a bonus or a commission check or something. And I would take that and go buy a, a flip and we would flip it and take the capital. And I'd go buy one more flip, take the capital. And we take the capital from those two and go buy another multi and rinse and repeat. And I did that for oof, seven years at least. But so you know, like some of the things that everybody doesn't talk about with flipping is you're creating a tax problem right? I mean, you're creating the highest tax problem you can have. And so you had a job in the tech world, getting paid really well, you took and you added to that. So the IRS never looked at that money as going underneath your tech income, it was always on top of so you were creating a bigger and bigger tax problem. So it sounds to me Ed, like you were creating a hamster wheel that you weren't getting off, but was starting to go a lot faster before you could get off. Yeah, I had to, it, it took me seven years. It probably should have taken me two or three had I been a lot smarter about it. And you're absolutely right. I wrote some very large checks to Uncle Sam and it hurt every time, man. Yeah, uh, you know, something about that just makes grown men cry. <clears throat> but why, <clears throat> what was it that you finally figured out that let you understand that, hey, you know what, there is a better way. Was it mentorship? Was it just reading on your own? Was it really digging in? Uh, with others? Or, or was it just something that was an epiphany at the middle of the night? You know, it was something I had already gone back. I had already gone full time because my portfolio had kind of eclipsed where I was making in my W-2. So I'd already left and I was stuck, right? I was about a year into going full time. And I was talking with one of my mentors, Rob Bernstein, who was the CEO of a company I used to work for. 
And he's like, why are you stuck? And I, I said, well, you know, I'm, yeah, I have a finite amount of money and there's, you know, I'm not going to break into my emergency savings and my retirement. I've got to figure out a way to do this. So I'm just going to flip more. And he's like, you're not thinking about this right. And he said, you know, basically, look, you spent the last 20 plus years working for venture capital backed companies. You know how to do this and you're not doing it yourself. What the hell is wrong with you? And he gave me a, a pretty good tongue lashing, to be honest, because, you know, he was right. I was looking right past the fact that I had all this experience and, you know, I was so focused on controlling the deal and getting 100% that I forgot that there are other people out there that would love to invest in, you know, these types of deals. And so I finally took a step back, kind of got out of that, you know, losing the forest through the trees thing. And, and then started to raise money very slowly because I didn't know, you know, I had been in the room for some of those raises, you know, back in the tech days, I had never been the guy in the front of the room. And so, so that was a little scary myself, right? Because that took a, mind sh a mindset shift in a pretty major way because I was starting, you know, I started with the, the, the folks that already knew me and, and cared about me and trusted me and my friends and family, right? And I didn't want to just go ask them for money, right? Because uh, it didn't sit right with me. And, and that's not actually what I was doing, right? What I was doing was creating deals or finding deals that were providing pretty good returns back then and still do. And the, you know, the fact is that I was providing an opportunity and that was a mindset shift for me in that I had to help them educate them and under, help them understand that, you know, you're going to give me a dollar. I'm going to give you a dollar twelve, a dollar fifteen, a dollar twenty back, right? Yeah. And, and you so know, that was the thing. I think for me, <clears throat> you know, my story is, as most of you know, is very similar. But you know, I I had done deals with partners where they were writing checks and I was doing the work, right? <clears throat> and we did that all the way up to the last the deal we sold in January of 22, where the family office wrote a 19 million dollar check, right? And I was comfortable talking to people that I knew through an acquaintance or people that were in the business. It's when I really turned on my personal network and really started talking to people that really actually did know, like, and trust me that I got a little bit uncomfortable. And I really, you know, I, the first time I raised money, I raised $1.8 million and it took me five months. Right. Wow. And it was one of those things that it was because of the way that I, yeah. I approached it from this, from the point of view that you can help me. And right. that was sitting like a, you know, like a lead, lead balloon in everybody's lap because it wasn't coming to them going, hey, I have an opportunity to crush this deal and to do this with the expertise that I already have. And I'm looking for partners. Would you like to partner with me? And would you like to participate in that deal? Right. And it wasn't, nothing about the deal changed. Nothing about the plan to execute changed. Nothing changed except for my feelings and my approach. And when I did that, the results were astronomically different. I mean, they were not even categorically the same, right? I went from the first raise of 1.8 to the next raise of 10 million in a span of eight months. And the $10 million one we closed out in, in, in three and a half months, right? Yeah. And it had everything to do with my mindset, my attitude, my shift. And, you know, some still said no. Sure. But the thing is that they're not saying no to you. And that's something that I found 
I was very comfortable with when, you know, being in sales and marketing, I heard no thousands of times through my career. They're not saying no to you. They're saying no to your offer. And so I actually took that as an opportunity to say, okay, well, give me some feedback. Like what could I, how could I construct this differently? Or, you know, is there any way that I could have changed the capital stack or the construct of the deal in some way that would have been attractive to you? And I'm not, and I turn the sales guy off, right? It's just, hey, give me straight feedback so that I can be better at this next time, right? We're done for this one, right? It's cool. And, and so it's, I do that a lot. I ask for that feedback with not every no, but if I sense that there's an opportunity to have that conversation, you know, stripes off, let's talk. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that I've looked at is that most of the time, the no isn't about me, right? It's not even about the deal. It's about them. Right. Yep. I mean, I had a conversation yesterday with a very good friend of mine and he is very successful. Right. And he has these beliefs and feelings that don't allow him to do this kind of a deal. Right. He's been successful. So it's hard to argue with the fact that, you know, you're never supposed to take advice from somebody that doesn't make more than you. But it's one of those things that he has his own issue. Right. He's got his own set of things. Right. And looking at that going, you know what, what, what's the problem? What's the issue? Why is this happening? You know? So, so the way, so I have similar experiences, right? You know, I've got my two college roommates who are, you know, godparents to my daughters. So we're very close. You know, both of them are invested in the projects that we're working on. I have another friend who I've known for, let's see, I'm 54, just over 50 years. We met in nursery school and we talk about it all the time. How's it going? What's going on? What's and all that. But he's never invested and I've never offered, right? Because there's something in his makeup that is either risk averse or, you know, there are just some people out there that say, look, I like having you as my friend and I don't want to muddy those waters with business. And that's totally cool. Had that experience with my wife, right? So my wife is a very successful accounting and finance executive. And when I went full time, I said, hey, I, I would really like, because, you know, we tend to be a yin and yang type of couple anyway, right? I'm the creative kind of guy and she's the type A, making sure the trains run on time type of a person. And it works really well in our relationship. And she's got the looks too, I could tell. I absolutely married up and above my station. And I am a very lucky man. And occasionally she reminds me that I'm a very lucky man. (laughs) Well, you're very lucky that she only occasionally reminds you. That's great. Well, occasionally is relative, right? So, so, you know, she told me, she's like, look, I, I don't think that our working styles would mesh and I'd much rather be married to you than be your business partner. And I said, oh, first off, I was a little offended. I'm like, this is my person, but you know, and, but you know, the fact is that what's important to her is that she doesn't want me to bring it home. Right. I'm sitting in my office and when I cross that threshold, I'm out of real estate world and I'm in Matthew's world and that's two different places. And the reason that's so important to my wife is because I wasn't very good at that when I was, you know, during my career, right? I'd always be home. So, but you know, that's another thing that a lot of people don't talk about. I mean, when you go into, I mean, even when you were in the tech world, yes, there was stress, there was pressure, but there was no financial gun to your head. I mean, your boss could have decided that you no longer work there. And that's a risk that all employees run. But it wasn't like if your boss decided you don't work there, that, your cars and your house and your livelihood all disappear. It's just, you know, we're not going to pay you anymore, Matthew. We're going to, or Ed, we're going to, we're going to ask you to go succeed somewhere else. 
but then you have the opportunity to get another job. But it's not that you, the, the the financial part of it. There's a lot of pressure in this business. There's a lot of things that you have to deal with. There's a lot of, you know, lending changing. I mean, you know, insurance costs going up. How are you going to mitigate that? You know, how do you guys, it sounds like you have a really good start because she doesn't want to be involved with you. So you're not both stressed out about the same thing. How else do you manage that inside your household and just bring that together so that you guys are able to really embrace that financial freedom and embrace the ability to enjoy that life? It's a great question. So it started off as I would, you know, be very open in terms of, hey, this is what's going on. Hey, I screwed this up. Hey, this went very well. She's like, I, I don't want that detail. It's stressing me out. I said, okay, well, what what can I do? I don't know, she's a straight shooter. Uh, you know, what can I do to make sure we're on the same page? And so we came up with this system where I basically treat her like, you know, a member of our board of directors. And I have a, you know, a, a financial statement that I sit down and I go through with her on the first of every year, uh, on the first of every month. And, you know, it's a, we're good. We're not so good. Hey, we got to talk, right? And, but, you know, I give her that detail so that she understands where we are. Occasionally she has a question and sometimes she has a problem. And most of the time she's like, oh, okay, thanks. Appreciate it. Well, and I think, you know, when we come home, you know, when we leave the office at the end of the day, we're not done processing, right? And even though in here, we've got all the information rattling around and we've got everything we need to know to solve the problem, we may not have the solution. Then we go home, we talk to our partner and they're not getting all the facts, right? They're only getting, well, and then Jimmy said this, and then the banker said that, and then we're kind of in this situation. The, without laying it all out, without taking the time to treat it like a board meeting, they're they're at a huge disadvantage. Well, why didn't you tell me that? Why wasn't this disclosed? And, you know, and so I think that's healthy because then you've, you, you've established that communication, but you've also established that communication in context. Right. And in doing that, she can see the health of the company. She can be that other set of eyes outside looking in. She can be objective. She can be all those things. At the same time, she's got enough information to actually do that job properly. Yeah. And in fact, there's been times where she's looked at the, you know, the balance sheet and the financial statements and said, you're about to be over leveraged a lot. Careful what, you know, and so we'll talk about that, right? Because that is her expertise. And so I'm able to kind of dial it because I'm the, we got a deal. This is wonderful. You know, kind of a, that's the first phase of me in a, you know, analyzing a deal. And then we get into the numbers. But, you know, the fact is that with rising interest rates, you know, there was a point last year where we kind of tapped the brakes a little bit because, you know, I was about to, I was quite frankly about to do a pretty big deal that was pretty thin, too thin actually. And, you know, sometimes the deals you don't do are the best deals. And in this case, I, she snapped me too. And I went to our CPA and we worked it out and tried to figure out a way through it. And we couldn't. So we backed up. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the reality of all of this is about growth, right? I mean, you know, you were, I mean, and that's the beautiful thing about the real estate journey is that, that there is, there's plenty of classes to take, right? You can take, you can take single family one-on-one. You can take, you can even get into the advanced level, single family 202, you know, meth house 304, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's all different kinds of classes you could take, but you don't have to take them all, right? And you can get to that level and, and building out the team and having those that are more than just financially invested in you, right? Your CPA is financially invested as you, in you. 
They want you to succeed so that you can keep paying their bills, so that you continue to need their services, but they may not be emotionally invested in you. They may not be personally invested in you the way that your wife is, the way that your investors are, right? Your investors are financially invested in you. And this is something that I struggle with a lot is my investors are financially invested in me, but they're personally invested in me. They're not betting on the Mossy Head Project in Florida. They're betting on Shannon, you know, and they're putting their trust in, I mean, it's no different than the T-bill, right? I mean, we've got an economy that's built on a house of cards. We've got an economy that's full of balance sheet money, but everybody buys T-bills when wars break out because they want their money in the safest nation on the planet. That has nothing to do with love. That has everything to do with, you know, I want safety. I want security. And so when we, when we take that and we internalize that, you know, there's a lot of responsibility when it comes to raising money. And there's a lot of, and we've seen, you know, Ed, you and I have seen it over the last year and a half, those that never really cared about their investors, that, it, that they were just a tool to be used to, for a gain to be made, to, to get to a place. They were never part of that overall thought process. And I know you're different than that. I'm, I've definitely, you know, I, I don't lose sleep over my investors because I would never make a deal that would cause me to lose sleep over somebody else's money. I, and to be clear, I have lost my money. I've never lost my investors' money. And I think if I ever was put in the position, I would give all of my money to cover the investors because that's, to me, they are the ones that put all of their trust in Shannon. And I know that you're the same way, Ed, but how do you manage that? How do you, I hate to say it like this, but how do you sleep at night, Ed? <laughs> there are times, quite frankly, there are times where I haven't slept at night, right? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a story. So I, 2018, I bought a 15,000 square foot building, 12,000 square foot building in New Britain, Connecticut. And I had owned it for about a, I had owned it for about a week. And I got a phone call that from my property manager at, you know, six o'clock in the morning. And I, Shannon, you know, well, those are never, Hey, everything's going okay. Phone calls, right? Just want to let you know, I sent out the check. That's not yeah, that call. <laughs> it's gonna, the wire should hit your bank account any day, any moment now. The, you know, the fact is the building next door was burning and she was calling me. And unfortunately, the, my building was like 15, 20 feet away from the building that was on fire. And I said, okay, well, you know, give me a, a rundown on what's going on. She goes, so far, everything's fine. You have nothing to worry about, but I just wanted to let you know that when you flick on the news, you're going to see your building with a very large fire right next door. Okay, thanks. I'm on my way. I'll see you in about 20 minutes. And, you know, I go bombing out to New Britain to, you know, hopefully take a garden hose and spray some water between the two buildings so that, but, you know, it turns out everything was fine. No one was hurt. It was an abandoned building. And, but it was actually nearly identical to the building I owned. So I started to track down and my friend Ron ended up tracking down the owner of the building and we ended up buying it for nothing, $50,000. Mm -hmm. And I had the advantage. some improvement. <laughs> slightly. It actually wasn't as bad as it looked on the news, right? Weird situation. There was a bolt of lightning that struck the roof and a similar bolt of lightning that struck the basement and it went up like a chimney, Right. And there was an investigation, which fortunately I wasn't involved with. And I don't know how it turned out, but I know that the guy that used to own the building is a lot harder to reach today. Let's just say that. Um, that it's funny. That was one of those, yeah, prosecuted for a bolt of lightning. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I ended up, we buy the building 
And I had a buddy of mine's a structural engineer in the area. So he and I walked it. And by the way, I do not recommend this because I did not have permission and it was really dangerous and dumb. So I didn't even tell my wife I did this. But the, you know, the fact is that, you know, we walked it and it actually wasn't that bad. You know, there were certain areas, flooring systems needed to be replaced. The stairs had dropped, you know, six or eight inches into the basement because of the fire in the basement. But overall, the building was a brick building and it was fairly solid. They used to, you know, they did a really good job building buildings back in, you know, creating or building buildings like that back in the 1800s. And so I did the deal and we started to empty the building and, you know, trash it out and secure it. And one of the things that I did was I hired a general contractor who will be who will be nameless to manage the security and the trash out. And the one thing I added to his work breakdown was to remove the sheathing, the decking on the roof. It was a pitch roof and the supporting rafters, but leave all the support for the floors. He hires a sub. Now I've known this contractor for years. I mean, I've done tons of work with him and I've vetted him six ways to Sunday. He's a solid guy, but we all make mistakes. He hires a subcontractor who doesn't pay attention to his guys and his guys clear the entire fourth floor of all lumber support. Everything's gone. And so now I have a brick box with no tensioning support. I'm in New York. So this is all happening in the morning as I'm traveling to New York to go meet with investors. The I get a phone call that afternoon. Hey, the back of the building just fell off and landed in the in the parking lot. But good news, that's where dumpsters were. So most of the bricks fell into the dumpsters. And you know, my first reaction is, well, was anybody hurt? And fortunately, no one was hurt. Everybody out of the building. And he said, well, yeah, that's why I'm calling you. Everybody is out of the building and the fire department's here and the building inspector's here. And I said, I'm three hours away. I can't, I can't be there until tomorrow morning at the earliest. And, but I'm on my way, you know, so, cause this was, I don't know, right just before dinner time, I think. And by the time I got there later that night, the front of the building had fallen into the building itself and cracked all 40 rafter or uh, flooring joists across the building, collapsed the building, basically. It collapsed the, collapsed the top floor. And so I had partners on that deal. And my first phone call to them was, you know, we have insurance, we're going to take care of this. And it turns out that the guy that the sub that did the work didn't have the right insurance. And so he wasn't going to be covered. So subrogation is was going to be a real problem. And you know what, I basically spent about $350,000 of my own money to basically make sure that building stayed intact because the structural engineers were telling me that the building's actually okay. You just need to build back the fourth floor and fix the floor joists. And so, you know, that was the original plan. And then I sued everybody and, you know, it ultimately worked out. But, you know, the one thing that I was focused on was, hey, look, this is my fault. Yes, I hired the contractor, but I didn't vet the sub, which I do all the time now. And, and it was, you know, potentially a huge problem. And so I... Hey guys, real quick. If you're enjoying this show, I want to ask you to please give us a five-star rating and review on whatever platform you're listening to right now. Leaving us a rating and review takes just a few seconds, and it's a great way to show your support for our show. Your support helps us reach more listeners and create better content. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Now let's get back to the show. Well, the reality is too, if you're not taking care of, <clears throat> yeah, if you're not taking care of who's doing what, 
if you're not vetting it and Ed, you acted like it was your own money because it needed to be, right? And we see so many people that want to do certain things, want to be certain things, but they don't have the financial backing. They don't have, maybe they don't even have the moral compass to be these things, but there has to be a solution first and, and, and then we can sort it all out in court. And I know how insurance companies work. Unless you sue them, you're not going to get what's rightfully yours. So you have to. But in, in the end, you know, this can be the difference if you just throw up your hands and go, well, well I'm done. I mean, that, and that would have been a very easy thing to do. You bought a building for 50 grand. Now you're $350,000 into it. You're looking at it going, I'm going the wrong way on this. You know, we're going to pull the plug. Where did you find the tenacity, the ability to go, I have to continue to do this? Why did you continue that and, and push that project all the way back through? So, so there was a lot of factors, right? One of them was that that kind of slowed us down was COVID, right? This happened right before COVID. So the 18 months, almost 20 months of waiting for the courts to turn to open back up. So that was a huge stressor. And uh, the reason that I pushed forward was that the, the property was going to be worth many multiples of that, you know, the property that we were going to build was going to be many multiples and the, you know, the 300,000, 400,000 that I was down, I was going to get back. I was, I was confident I was going to get that eventually back from, you know, through court. And I did. And, and then it took a couple of years, but you know, it was worth the path, worth the moving forward. You know, the other part of it was that I fundamentally believe in creating affordable housing and Connecticut is in a nightmare of a situation where we are roughly 30,000 housing units behind where we need to be 2030. And there's no developers creating, there's not enough developers creating properties. So I saw this as an opportunity. And, you know, so frankly, it was one of those situations where if we stayed on path, you know, we figured out how to get through the, the initial problem fairly quickly, had to wait for the courts to get back in to, to, to move it forward. I spent a lot of sleepless nights wondering if I was going to get my $350,000, $400,000 back. And, you know, ultimately I got some of it back, not all of it. And the rest of it I ate. And ultimately we ended up deciding to bulldoze the building. And I brought in a, a new developer who's redeveloping the entire neighborhood. He's amazing. And he made me an offer to, to acquire the property that was well above what I thought the property was worth. Sat with my investors and said, okay, done. And it turned out everybody actually made money on the deal. But, yeah. but, well, and, but it was and, you know, process, right? a three-year process. Yeah. And a lot of that, you know, you head down one path, you've got a business plan. It's going to go this way. It's going to go that way. Then you have things like COVID, you have interest rates, you have, you know, and not that interest rates are that surprising. The rise, the timeline that it rose is surprising, but the rise back out of two and 3% is not surprising, but you do have business plans that change. You do have things that don't go right. More often than not, you have things that don't go per plan, right? That's what plan B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, and L are for, right? But we still have that opportunity to decide whether or not we're going to continue this, right? So, so when you look at this, you had a tech job. You were gone 150 nights a year. You were out on the road a lot. You were doing the thing. But was it really harder than what you're doing now? No. Actually, I think that, wow, it's a really good question, actually. Was it harder? In many respects, yes, because I was missing some really good stuff at home. I had little kids and I was missing soccer games and softball games and choir and parent-teacher 
conferences and, you know, I didn't see my wife. I would leave Sunday night and come back Thursday night or Friday morning. And, you know, I missed a lot of good stuff over about a 10, 12 year span. And so that was one of the things that really kind of pushed me to move into, you know, this full-time job. I would say that part of it was hard, but I didn't have the stressors of making payroll and paying my guys every Friday and, you know, effectively managing my investors' money and communicating and being open and transparent, even when things went uh, sideways. And that's the thing. That's the thing that a lot of people forget, right? I mean, you're, it's not, and we hear this, you know, real estate, it's all about freedom. And it can be as you build teams. It can be as you scale. You know, you're going to find somebody that's going to become your CFO, that they're going to spend the sleepless night, right? They're going to they're gonna be able to deal with that. And you're going to find somebody else that's going to be, you know, your chief of operations. And you're going to find these other people. But in the meantime, that there's only one way through that. You know, I I watched a a tech company become a building company. It was a unicorn company called Katera, and they were going to rock the world and change the world. And they did it from the top down. They raised a billion dollars. They came into Boise, Idaho. They built an apartment complex, and it was literally a lesson in what not to do, right? Their investors, I don't know how they fared, but they, you know, they're no longer doing what they thought they were going to do, you know? And the only proper way, in my opinion, to build this like you are, like I am, is from the ground up. And every time you get to another level, you backfill with a person that's qualified and probably more qualified than I was to take that role on. And you keep growing like that. But in order to do that, you've got to go through the fire. You've got to go through the crucible of getting you to the place that you now have enough coming in the front door to pay somebody else to take care of this so that you can go get more coming in the front door so that somebody else can take care of it. And yet you have to build that responsibly. You know, we've all had those people that we've hired that were supposed to do a certain thing. And we find out two, four, six months in, they're not doing that certain thing or they're not doing it the way we want. And so there's all of that different kind of stress, but it does, it is one of those things that I think is actually, I I look at it more like a savings account, like a bank account, right? So I'm going through this stress and this pressure, and I'm going to have those experiences to draw from where in your previous tech job, you were going through all those sacrifices and doing all those things, but there was no bank account. There was nothing down the road for Ed. There was no, there was nothing that was going to ever stop the need to be on that hamster wheel because the minute you stopped moving for the tech company or they decided you were no longer, they were going to encourage you to go succeed somewhere else, it was over and that money supply stopped. This is actually something that can build that out for you. And yet a lot of people forget that mentality. They forget that there is stress, there is pressure, there are things that you've got to deal with, there are challenges to overcome. And if you're not of the mindset that you really want to tackle these problems, they don't go away, they get bigger. So it it comes down, for me, it comes down to purpose, like your why, as they say. And I'm crystal clear on why I do this, right? You know, the fact is that I've been very blessed. I've had a good career. I have a great marriage. I have great kids, you know, if, but here's the thing. So the reality of genetics, right? My family, they tend to live into their mid eighties. My wife's family is a bunch of genetic freaks. They live well into their nineties and most of the women live into their hundreds, which means that statistically she's going to be here 15, 20 years longer than I will. And, you know, one of the things that I see in real estate is it is a annuity for the better part of, for lack of a term, where I know that I've created a, you know, I'm on my way to creating a portfolio, a business that 
supports us today will continue to support us as we move into the next stage of our life, whatever that is. And, but also when I lay my head down for the last time, I'll know that she's going to be okay if she needs, you know, assisted living or medical care or memory care or anything, it'll be handled. And I know it'll be handled because I'm building that business right now. And so I do it for her, but I also do it for my kids, right? Because girls, my daughters, you know, they shouldn't be financially responsible for their mom because their dad didn't do his part, right? And so I want them to be able to have the freedom to live how they want to live. And one of the ways I do that is by making sure that I'm taking very good care of us even after I'm gone. Well, the other thing too, Ed, your job is to spoil them and accustom them to a lifestyle that a normal man can't afford, right? I mean, you know, listen, if it's not lobster on the first date, I don't know that this really has anywhere to go. And, you know, not because that's going to protect them, but you, you want their life to be easier. And if you can just make them expect certain things, right? And at least that's the mentality that I've tried to adopt. Every let's, year, let's, every let's, year I take my girls out to like a spectacular dinner and, yeah. you know, I treat it, you know, I, I don't go so far as a limousine, but it's just, you know, I take them to the most, you know, a, a nice show and a phenomenal dinner. And I am trying to set that bar for their future boyfriends so damn high that they, those yeah. poor guys they yeah. do not yeah. have a show. Yeah. Well, and you know, if they can just even exude that air of untouchable, right? But let's talk a little bit about, you know, we, we talked about some of the difficulties. What are some of the things that you really wish you would have known before you got involved in real estate? I mean, things that that people kind of glance or glass over, they kind of simplify, you know, that are really things that you wish you would have been keyed in on because it would have saved you time, money, and effort. What What is one of those things? Great question. So I, I think first and foremost, I probably wouldn't have flipped. I would have raised money immediately. And yeah. I, it probably would have impressed that 100%. by years. I would be five years beyond where I am today, at least, and probably more. Because I think the law of compounding, it would, it would snowball. And so I think that is a, if I could take the last 13 years back, that is a number one, what I would do. I'd never flip a house. I'd get into multifamily immediately. And I would invest alongside my partners, but I wouldn't rely on my bank account to launch this business off by itself. So, I mean, had you done that, you would have run into some of these other problems that you're having now earlier, right? I mean, your learning curve would have been much steeper, but again, your returns would match that, you know? Correct. Uh, I, I had somebody ask me the other day, you know, does it make you mad when you think back on all the deals you've sold? Like, you know, I don't know, like maybe I'm reminiscing about old girlfriends or something, but, you know, the one that got away. But the, the thing that I've done is I've actually mapped it out. Right. Because if I look back and, and I go, man, I, I sold that building for $500,000 and now it's worth a million too. I, I've actually had to stop the crying, put the napkins down, you know, but I've looked at, okay, what did I do with that money? What did I do with that experience? What did I do with that knowledge? Where am I next? What is the next step? What is the next goal? So that at the end of the day, I've been able to say, okay, I use that $125,000 profit to do this. I use this million dollars to do that. I did this with that so that I can look at the the fact that, yes, okay, I had to flip a few houses, right? There is literally, Ed, not one thing in construction that you could do that I haven't done, right? I've moved a house, right? I've dealt with a burned out one. I mean, I've done literally everything. I've dealt with meth labs. I've dealt with, I mean, all of it, right? All of it. Multifamily, I've done duplexes, fourplexes. I've done commercial. I've done 
you know, all of those different things. And so in all of that experience, I know what I want to do, right? And so when people ask, well, why don't you do single family? It, it just doesn't fit for me, right? Because I have had that experience. I've got a tenant in a single family home still today, right? And if there wasn't a bigger purpose behind owning that piece, I wouldn't do it, right? But at the same time, I had to learn those lessons. And a lot of times we don't want to, we don't want to turn up the heat, right? We're kind of comfortable. Life is good. We're doing this size of a deal. It's working every single time. But there's so much growth that happens when the fire is on. There's so much that you come out the other side with. And I'm going to use your building of the fire, right? I mean, you have a literal building that you dealt with a fire and you dealt with a subcontractor and you dealt with a wall that collapsed and you dealt with a series of quote unquote catastrophes. You looked at expending $350,000 of your own money that probably was such a significant amount that you wondered if this real estate thing wasn't the right thing and maybe it was time to go back to tech every day. And then you've come out the other side and now that is what, 18 months behind you? A couple of years, yeah. Okay, so over two years behind you. But in that, you've been able to find the lessons, the nuggets, right? Every time I do a project, I do what's called a postmortem. I look at it and I go, what could we have done better? This could have been a, this could have been a ringer, but what could we have done better? What could we have done different? How would it have worked otherwise, right? Yep, we do the same thing. We do an after so, action. Yep. So yeah, yours is a little bit more fun sounding. Mine, you know, postmortem, you know. But what are some of the things that you look at that you didn't want to do at the time, but are invaluable to you now? In terms of running projects. So one of the things that I've realized is that I'm good at running construction projects. The problem is I'm not good at running construction projects, finding new deals, raising capital and doing all the other things that I do. And so, you know, one of the things that we've done is we've brought in a construction manager. We pay to make sure that those projects are running on time at least for the first year when, you know, when we acquire a building, we go in and the first thing is we make, you know, we buy, as I say, you, you know, to, on, online, you know, we buy crappy buildings from landlords who aren't very good at their jobs, right? In fact, they suck. <laughs> and, and so, you know, first thing we do is kind of a three-pronged approach. Clean and safe is the first path where we go through all the mechanicals, make sure everything's working the way it should be. So, you know, I know the HVAC is solid. I know the electrical is solid. I know the plumbing is solid. We upgrade all the common areas and to demonstrate to the residents that, hey, there's a new sheriff in town and we actually care. And then the third thing we do is we go through and start to triage and hopefully rehabilitate the relationship with the residents because most of the time they've been ignored and underserved. And so, you know, from my perspective, our my philosophy, our philosophy is that we want to repair as many of those relationships as possible. We want to create a, a property that they can be proud to live in that's, you know, fairly priced within the market. And I want them to stay a really long time because A, it's good for them and B, it's good business for us uh, because then we don't have to pay for lease ups and, you know, uh, overs and all that, right? And so that is something that, you know, we've gotten very good at. You know, it's a rinse and repeat kind of a system at this point. But in the early days, when I was trying to do everything, you know, I wasn't very good at it. So I had to come to the realization that, Yes, I'm capable, but no, I actually require sleep. So, you know, the fact is that, you know, I need a team who of people who are, you know, better than I am at it. 
so that I can focus on the things that, you know, the highest and best value, right, for the business. And that's, you know, my job is to help with acquisitions, but really my job is to be the face of the company and raise money. That's what I do. You know, and Ed, that's such a great thought process. I'm going to close because, I mean, I could talk for a long time and we've been doing this for almost 45 minutes now, but what is the one thing, if you could, you're, you're sitting here, you're almost a decade in on your real estate career. What is the one thing, one, the one thing that you could go back and tell yourself on that very first day of your real estate career? What would you say? Don't flip flat out. Because <laughs> the thing is that if I didn't flip, and, and by the way, I, you know, I don't drink, I don't do drugs. Flipping was my cocaine. I love everything about it, right? I love everything about it. I love you know, and that, and that is something that only another real estate entrepreneur would understand that analogy between drugs and alcohol and right. deals, deals. Yeah, it's, deals. I, I, it's what it was the juice that got me going, right? And but the thing is that you know, there was a good and a bad of that. The good of it was that I've walked into so many disasters. That when I go to buy a building today, nothing scares me. You know, I, I, you know, unless there's a structural problem, a major structural problem, most of those we can fix, or there's some sort of functional obsolescence, which you can't, you know, that's a little more difficult. I've yet to see a building we can't bring back to life. And so that presents us with an opportunity. The problem was, had I, you know, using Cortez, you know, burn the boats and not flipped, it would have forced me into the capital raise mindset years earlier. And I think that my investors would be better off. I would be better off. And the residents that live in our buildings would be far better off as well. Well, and knowing what your mentor told you and that you, that it took you and I both a while to understand is you've been, you have not been, your investors have not been helping you. You guys have formed a partnership that's helpful for both. And that's been something that has served everyone. Well, this is not a favor that they've done for you. Right? So and one last thing is where can everybody find you in the world? Where can they connect with you? Where can they bother you at? Where can they track you down? I, I am a cheap date. Give me a call. I'll buy you a cup of coffee and we'll have a, we'll shoot the breeze. Be careful guys. He'll, it'll be a virtual cup. I, I fell for that. <laughs> so, so you can find me on the web at Clark Street, ClarkST.com. That's Clark Street Capital's website, Clark Street Capital on all the major uh, social media networks. I'm also Ed Matthews four on all the major social media networks. And, and then I'm also the host of the real estate underground podcast. So you can find that on, on Buzzsprout as well as on YouTube. So, and there was a great episode where we had a very similar conversation to this one, but Ed, I want to say thanks for coming on and being honest. You know, there's a lot of this out there that it's all raw. It's all, you know, fun and games and everybody's just crushing it. And Thankfully, Ed, you are, but it's because of the lessons that you shared with us. So listeners, if you love this episode, drop us a comment, let us know. Uh, you know where to get a hold of me, shannonrobdad.com, and we will see you next time on The Real Estate Rundown. Thanks for listening. I hope you found tons of value in this show. It would help us a lot if you could rate and leave us a five-star review as we continue our mission to help others just like you in their real estate journey. Thank you, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Robnet's Real Estate Rundown.